A baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine, your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. On this episode of the original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be investigating tips for navigating the healthcare insurance maze, both private insurance and Medicare. We're fortunate to have two experts with us today, Dr. Jeffrey Frankel, a urologist with Frankel, Reed, and Evans. Dr. Frankel is the current president of the Western Section of the American Urological Association. He is a past president of the Washington State Urology Society and serves as the current chairman of government affairs. He is a past president of the American Association of Clinical Urologists and has been the past Europac chairman. We're also fortunate to have Mark Painter, BA. Mark is the CEO of Physicians Reimbursement Systems, LLC. Mark's company advises physician offices in management, insurance issues, and understands the scope of reimbursement both locally on a state and local level and federally. We're fortunate to have two experts with us. I'm going to start with Dr. Frankel. Dr. Frankel, you run a private office. And for many patients, they understand if they have insurance or if they don't, they walk into an office to be seen. Let's take a patient who has insurance who comes to your office. Now, in this day and age, not all offices take the same insurance. That patient may have checked to make sure that they can see you. And when they come to see you, they then go through a certain process. Do you want to describe generally what happens as far as the interaction based upon insurance with the patient? So when a patient presents, if we have a chance, we try to send them information ahead of time when they make the appointment so we can pre-register them and look up their eligibility. It's surprising how many patients think you're in their plan, but then you look into the details and there are some intricacies that make it more complicated. Insurance companies have gone to narrow networks, and if we contract with the insurance company, it's under the assumption that we will see more of their patients and we have a contracted rate. Many patients have co-payments associated with the cost of being seen initially, which is usually collected at the window right up front. We need to then collect demographics, ID, their insurance card, and try to find out their current problem, again, hopefully ahead of time. So that always brings up an interesting issue. A patient has the same employer. They've been seeing you maybe for a number of years. The employer changes insurance. They still come to see you. What happens then? This is a, this is a common problem. Patients 
think that they have the same insurance or on a yearly basis they get offered new plans with less premiums. They sign up for those plans for economic reasons and then subsequently find out that they can no longer see the same doctors that were taking care of them previously. It's unfortunate but common. So it's important for listeners to, if they do have insurance, to double check that they are able to continue to see the physicians they've been seeing and to check before they go see a new physician that that physician is on the plan. Now, part of the economics that people, I'm not certain, really grasp about reimbursement is what a physician's office may bill that patient isn't necessarily what the physician's office is receiving. Do you want to go into that a little bit? So... Almost, I would say, 90-plus percent of our reimbursements come from insurance companies or the federal government. Those fees are set ahead of time, either through contracting with the company itself or set by the government when it comes to Medicare. We do not balance bill in those situations. The patient has a copay, which is taken out of what the insurance companies pay us. These fees are not really negotiated in the sense that the insurance companies care about what costs to run our practice. It's really the, the set fee based on some regional variations within the country and the state. You bring up an interesting point. You're in private practice, so I'm going to assume that you're not subsidized by the hospital that you have working relationship with. Uh, why don't you explain what that implies, meaning running a private office? I, I suspect most listeners who are in business know that in order to keep their doors open, there are certain issues that have to be met. Talk about that for a medical practice. Well, of course, we have our employees who have salaries and benefits. We do provide health care, pay our taxes. In the state of Washington, we have a business and occupational tax on top of that. Behind the scenes, we buy supplies, we pay rent, we pay medical malpractice insurance. All of this goes into running the practice. Minimum wages are going up, and yet the uh, reimbursements are relatively stagnant. Another example of an interaction you might have with a patient is your on-call obligation. Many physicians, there is a relationship with a hospital. Uh, as surgeons, we utilize a hospital to do our major surgeries. Part of the obligation we have by being able to utilize the hospital services is to take call. But there are some circumstances where you'd be called to see a patient who may not be on your insurance network. When the patient comes to an emergency room of a hospital, if it's a true emergency, they may call 911, they may be brought in by themselves or a family member, and they just want to be taken care of. Later on, they find out that the hospital may or may not be part of the network. Even when the hospital's part of the network, some of the providers may not be, either myself, emergency room physicians, pathologists, anesthesiologists particularly. That can lead to in-network or out-of-network billing issues. So you may hear the word balance billing or surprise billing. These are bills that show up that the patient did not expect because the physician was not part of the network. And we all have sympathy for the patient so they don't have an unusual financial burden. But some of the times we don't join the network because the fees aren't reasonable. So the government, mainly the state legislature or the federal government, is currently working on a plan to try to sub subsidize the payments and either categorize them in a way that the patient isn't burdened and subsequently have potential bankruptcy because of medical bills. So I'm going to now direct this to Mark Painter to just give us a little overview nationally of what's happening with reimbursement and issues involved in SAME. I'd say nationally there is a significant influence in the marketplace on Medicare rates. Medicare is the single largest payer touching everybody. 
and every year they set their rates based on a formula that kind of drives how everybody's paid in all parts of the country. So what we see is the private sector or the commercial payers are also indexing their contracts to Medicare rates. Medicare rates for physicians have been flat or haven't gone up for about 10 years. You're really seeing, you know, a, a, a process where rents are going up, utilities are going up, Salaries are going up for all the people and costs across the board are going up for everyone in a physician office. At the same time, though, the physicians are not seeing their rates or what they're paid by the insurance companies go up at all. You're seeing a lot of people trying to, in the physician world, work in a very or a shrinking margin situation, which is a difficult situation across the board. People listening, they'll go, well, I'm having more of my paycheck taken out towards my premiums or I'm paying higher premiums. Employers may say, I'm paying higher premiums for my employees. Their costs are going up. You're saying that physicians are not receiving an increase. Hospitals, I know, are complaining that they're not receiving that significant increase. The insurers, from their perspective, are having difficulty and pulling out of some markets. What's going on? Good question. And I would have to say... It's a variety of issues across the board. We are seeing essentially a number of patients now as the baby boomers are getting older with more problems. So the amount of care that can be or that is provided to those individuals, the individuals as a whole is going up. So we're doing, we're providing more care to more people. The other thing you're starting to see is because we can do more and Medicare or medical care has improved over the years is... We are using more resources on fewer people that are living longer and requiring more for their care. So in the end, we are subsidizing a few who are using more care. And certainly we've all heard the statistics that you know, a significant portion of the health care dollar goes to the last year of life with patients. So those shifts... Uh, and the amount of money we're doing with more people in the overall system are really taxing everyone in the marketplace. And then you also have to take a look at the number of things we can do now versus a few years ago. That has grown as well. So there are a lot of things. I mean, you can talk about place of service, some of the unintended consequences maybe of the consolidation in the marketplace now with hospitals purchasing physicians. The care that's provided in a hospital setting costs more. The formulas are set up to pay the hospitals an additional fee compared to a physician office that stands on its own or an ambulatory surgical center. So the place in which the services are offered actually drives things up. So there are an, an, a number of things that are out there. And then, of course, we haven't addressed at all pharmaceuticals and drugs that are out there, which A, are expensive and B, do you know maybe prolong life, but also cause side effects that have to be treated. So it is, it is really a number of items that are stacking together that are driving up health care costs. I suspect we could have a couple hours of discussion about that. Uh, as we're limited, I did want to get to an issue that a lot of patients face while we're still talking about just getting into an office, having services provided. And that's this concept of prior authorization where patients are going, how come I can't get that medication that I was on or I... Uh, 
understand you were ordering that service for me and nobody's called me for that. Dr. Frankel, you want to start with the explanation about prior authorization? Yes, that's becoming an increasingly difficult burden on all practices, regardless of the type. And depending on how many personnel you have working for you, it's what we call an unfunded mandate. We're trying to help the patient make the best medical decision, not based on economic issues. We put in, let's say, a prescription or we recommend an imaging study. We have to get prior authorization. That can take up maybe sometimes a day, sometimes a couple weeks. Meanwhile, the patient's ongoing medical problems persist. There's also something called fail-first therapy for pharmaceuticals. In other words, we may write a a medication. The medication may be newer. The pharmacy benefits to that patient may require them to take a less expensive generic medication before they can try the newer medication. They actually have to fail this medication before they can get the preferred treatment. This is frustrating for both us and the patient. Now, some patients assume it's our office that's the obstacle. Uh, This is not something that's coming from a physician's office. Quite true. Matter of fact, a lot of times we will send in faxes, we will call, we have documentation, and yet we hear the patients calling our office commonly stating, well, we did not receive anything from the physician to authorize your treatment or diagnostic test. Yet we'll send these in two to three times. Studies have been done to show that it takes not only time, but extra personnel. And we are trying to fight this battle to give patients better care on a more prompt fashion. We do understand the costs are sometimes reduced by using less expensive modalities, but it's not necessarily in the best interest of the patient. This applies to both medications and imaging. When we have staff who are trying to fulfill this obligation on the patient's behalf, Uh, it's not the physician's office that is the problem. Sometimes when we send these faxes through, they're not received, or you get on a phone menu and you have to keep calling different people to get the authorization. Yes, as a specialist, board certified in urology, I have not had a CAT scan rejected. But they put these what we call speed bumps in because in the back of our mind, we know that maybe there's a workaround, maybe a less expensive alternative, and the insurance companies do save money. And we do want to save money for the system, but it's not necessarily in the best interest of the patient. So we're trying to give them the care they need. There's algorithms on the other end that people who really may not be trained as fully as we are go through before authorization is given, and a lot of it depends on documentation. Let's uh, also look at a patient who comes in who's been taking a medication that has been successful on that medication who changes insurance plan or is still with the same plan and finds out that they can't take the same medication. What happens there? Mark, do you want to talk about that? As Dr. Frankel mentioned, the algorithms in the various programs are set up by pharmacy benefit managers that may use different or slightly different algorithms or they start patients over without the previous history of the fail first and some of the other things from the other insurance companies. So in some senses, in in some ways, it's a data problem in not transferring or sharing well from one insurance company to the next. Um, And others, the issues uh, come from the fact that, that we just, we have different philosophies by different programs and different pharmacy benefit managers. And how is that overcome generally, Dr. Frankel? 
it's a very frustrating thing, particularly at the beginning of the year. Actually, deals are probably made on the pharmaceutical level, as Mark said, between benefit managers and what they actually get for dispensing the drugs. And potentially there's kickbacks and coupons between the pharmacy and the manufacturer. And a patient is doing quite well. Their disease state is well controlled. But unfortunately, they come into the office and we get letters saying, we will give you 30 days of the current medication and then give you a list of alternatives to try to switch to. And sometimes they don't know that the patient already has tried that medication and failed it. We have to go through an arduous process to get them medication that is working quite well. And sometimes these are quite serious medical conditions like hypertension medications, things that really the patients depend on to prevent serious strokes, for instance. These medicines are changed arbitrarily by insurance benefits. So as a frustrated uh, consumer, what can they do to help facilitate this process? You know, it's very difficult. I think it starts at the pharmacy level to understand what their benefits are. They can get lists of the medications that are covered. It's a part D when it comes to medications. They are able to ask, but a lot of the patients are confused by the names of the drugs. They may be on a branded medication. There's generic names that are quite difficult to navigate. But I think the best thing is to do your homework ahead of time and make sure that you're covered. So more is falling on the patient. And also, it seems like more co-pays or deductibles are falling on the patient. Mark? Tell us about that. There is a lot of there's a lot of plans now that have shifted cost to the patient across the board. And if you look at the kind of the process that this is going down, it really I think boils back down to a philosophy of those people who have to pay for services as they go tend to use fewer services instead of free for everything. And in the end, it, it's become a difficult process for physician offices who are now having to provide education to patients about what their insurance really covers. And so one of the things I would recommend to any patient across the board in any, in any physician office is that you look carefully at what you're actually purchasing as it changes from year to year. Deductible is something that needs to be met in most programs. That means those dollars up to that amount unless it is a preventive care visit or something that has a special coverage, all come from the patient before the insurance company starts to pay. Then beyond that, you have co-pays, and then there's still something else that's out there called co-insurance, which is a percentage of what the contracted amount is that still is paid by the patient even after you've met that deductible. It's difficult to understand from the patient side, and I think we use terms like balance billing. You know, balance billing to one side of the table means I, I can't bill you for the difference between my fee and what my contracted rate is. When, but why do I get a bill at all? So if the patient thinks of balance billing, they may think, why are you billing me at all? My insurance company paid me that. Well, contractually, you as a patient have an obligation to pay a particular amount up until the deductible and for coinsurance after that. That's not balanced billing from the physician side. It's actually your obligation within the contract for what you purchased. So understanding that issue 
and understanding that what you pay in premiums, whether it's your employer or it's you or a combination of the two, that that is not 100% coverage for everything you do is absolutely a difficult issue to understand, but a fact with all coverage and will continue to be because, again, they found it to be a reasonable way to slow down consumption of health care or from their standpoint, and I think marketing side, to stop seeking care that you don't really need. You briefly touched on universal access or universal universal care. Uh, when things are offered on a universal basis, it's covered versus uh, the old uh, free market. You know, before insurance, people walked in, negotiated with the physician, then there became insurance. And then we had Medicare. So let's talk first about Medicare and then talk a little bit about, since this is going to be a topic during the presidential election, about what Medicare for all or public option might mean. I think people should have a sense of what that could represent and what things might evolve to in this country. So first, why don't you go over Medicare a little bit, Mark? I will try not to go too far down this rabbit hole because you can spend a lot of time talking about everything with Medicare. But So I'll try and keep it a little high level. Generally, there are two parts to Medicare, Medicare Part A and Medicare Part B. Medicare Part A pays for hospital services and facilities. Medicare Part B pays for services provided by professionals like doctors and PAs and uh, psychiatrists, those types of people. They are split in, the, in the, their budgetary constraints and their payment methodologies are different. Back in the 1990s, there was a third level, Medicare Part C, that was added that is actually care that is provided to Medicare patients and it can pay for both Part A and Part B services, but is now actually provided through managed care companies or private insurance. So that is called managed Medicare, but that's technically labeled Medicare Part C. Then with George Bush, the father, we added Medicare Part D, and that is coverage for pharmaceuticals, which was a very important issue that was there. That was falling in between the cracks, if you will. So we have four different levels within Medicare that make that confusing because you can end up with Medicare Part A only. You can end up with Medicare Part B. And then if you're in a Medicare Part D, you may get dragged into a Medicare Part C. This is something that we see all the time, that patients are really going to meetings and they're told that they they can get a great pharmaceutical coverage under Medicare Part D plan. They go through the entire sales process and they decide, great, I have all these drugs. My medications are on this. Medicare Part D is really going to help my cash flow. They sign up for Medicare Part D thinking they're going to leave their Medicare in place because their doctor that they have, they know they can see under Medicare Part A and straight Medicare. Most, I think right now, it's about 93% of physicians are accepting Medicare Maybe not new Medicare, so there's some restrictions here and there, especially in the primary care space, but most physicians are available through Medicare. But when they get out the door and they've signed up for this new Medicare Part D program, they're now on a new Medicare Part C managed care program, and they can no longer see their physician. It is a a complicated world 
in how it's actually represented to the patient. And ultimately, the physician side has a difficult time tracking where the, where the patient is within the Medicare ABCD arena. It's important for the physician, and you may, you know, patients may get irritated that physicians ask to see your insurance card and your ID at every visit. But because these changes have happened over and over again, the physician really has to find out where to send your request for service in order to continue to provide those services. So that uh, D that expands into C, is that a Medicare Advantage plan? The Medicare Part C is a Medicare Advantage plan. The Medicare Part D is really just pharmaceuticals or drugs for the patient. So they are separate. You can have Medicare Part D without Medicare Part C. A lot of times the insurance companies would rather have your Part C and your Part D. And so there's a little bit there that that we see people actually kind of, I would say hoodwinked would be a good word to to signing up for Part C when they're really just trying to get their pharmaceuticals. So let's go back to straight Medicare. A, you sign up when you're 65. B is your benefits to see the physician. That's covered. You go into the hospital and you're taken care of 80%. And then you're told you still have 20% that you need to cover. So how do we handle that? Medicare was implemented with an 80-20. Basically, Medicare pays for 80% of the cost of the program as they designate it. And then 20% of that those services are, are now the responsibility of the patient. Now, a number of, of groups, organizations, and maybe your business has provided you with an, a Medicare supplemental. It could be a retirement benefit or it could be something that you purchase separately. So you can go to, and groups like AARP uh, have supplemental programs which pay that 20% for an additional premium that you pay to them. Medicare works well with these supplemental programs for the most part. You may not even see the transactions that go on, but essentially a physician could send a bill to Medicare. Medicare comes back, tells the physician, here's the allowed amount, here's what we pay you. The patient owes the ne- this an X dollars, and then automatically the claim then goes back out to the supplemental pan- plan, and the physician is paid for the difference If you have a full supplemental, then there are some plans where you may not have a full supplemental. So now, and maybe you have a third insurance. So the claim now goes with a balance to the third insurance company. And there still may be a balance and you may still get a bill. So it's very complicated in trying to navigate and find out where your insurance is and at what level it is. And if you don't show all that information to the physician so they can put it into their systems to actually bill, their only solution is to make you responsible. There are a number of cases where, let's say, a patient goes and gets service and then they're billed for the 20% and they come back and say, why are you billing me? I have a supplemental. And the reality is you didn't provide the supplemental. So, you know, in the end, you're a team to try and get coverage for everything you get in place. So if you work with your physician office and make sure that they are knowledgeable of all the insurance you have and all the interactions you have with insurance companies, they can help. So that there, there is a team aspect to this that needs to be done. And then I think most people are familiar that Medicaid would be separate from Medicare. 
but Medicaid is. So Medicaid is a program set up for the indigent, whereas Medicare is for essentially those 65 and older and those who are permanently disabled. So your qualifications of who is covered in each of those plans is very different. The other thing that's very different is Medicaid is primarily a state-run insurance program for the indigent, or different groups would label that differently. Those who are of lower income, and in different states, we have different definitions of who that who falls into that pool. The federal government then actually pays the states some to supplement the implementation of the Medicaid program. They have recently added some regulations to the Medicaid program require uh, utilization of certain code sets and and they're trying to get a little bit better to make the states a little more consistent from state to state so they're not 100 every you know like texas is is talking in spanish and in washington's in chinese it's it's they are trying to actually get everything at a little more of a level playing field but really who qualifies and coverage and how much is paid is actually governed by each state for medicaid versus medicare which is federally governed. And the reimbursement rates are significantly different. Dr. Frankel? Uh, yes. The uh, Medicaid, as, as Mark stated, is basically based on income, maybe how many children you have, and they have formulas which are different for each state. And the reimbursements are quite different. And again, the patient will come in with a card or a coupon saying, I have Medicaid. I think that is the plan that you might have the most difficulty finding a provider for those reimbursements are quite low, and physicians may have the option of not accepting those patients. It's nothing personal, but the costs may not cover the overhead because it is so low. Medicare is better paying than Medicaid, but still lower than commercial insurance. So when you hear comments, as was mentioned earlier, about uh, the expense of health care, and we're all concerned about the Medicare trust fund, which is already running in a deficit, we all want this to go forward, but we also have to understand that it, it does take a certain amount of cost to run a good health care system. So that leads us into the concept of individuals are still left without care, or when they need it, they go to the most expensive place, which is the emergency room, or they're not receiving the daily care that keeps them out of the emergency room. So the concept of universal care has been proposed, and in this upcoming election, we're going to hear more about that. Mark, do you want to give a little background on what that might represent? The topic of of the uninsured has been a hot topic for a number of years. We have not spent as much time talking about the underinsured as we should have. But there is uh, there are a number of studies that really show that lack of health care in a routine sense tends to drive up care later as people who can't afford to get routine visits or preventive visits or deal with pains and bumps as they show up because they just can't afford it later come back as as serious ailments that now require significant amounts of money that potentially could have been prevented. So there has been a lot of focus on access to those things. And that's really, I think, a focus of Obamacare was trying to do that. And they celebrated some victories in that we saw the level of uninsured go down. That did not, however, I think, translate as a, a, as a change to those who are underinsured. When you really looked at means versus deductibles and co-pays and really what was provided to those individuals in the form of health insurance. So 
um, as we move forward and we have some of these discussions. And to a certain degree, as you look around the world, you see that there is or are in most countries base level coverages for all people within the system. Now, they also, in most of these countries, have two tiers of health care where they, you may have a, a public hospital that requires a wait for services that you can get here in the U.S. tomorrow. And then actually across the street, a private hospital where if you've got the money, you can walk in and get that service done today. So you do look at the ability of and, and kind of the solutions that have been done across the world to handle some of these issues. Uh, and universal coverage uh, is one of those areas where they've attempted to give everybody coverage. But I don't think there's any system out there that has really solved the problem of uh, universal coverage, universal access, and satisfaction of the patient um, with, without pain in anywhere in the world. Uh, so we've got a lot of different things to, to deal with when we start talking about universal. Dr. Frankel, you want to comment? Yeah, it's obviously become somewhat of a political issue, and it's unfortunate in the sense that no matter what your affiliations are, beliefs in, healthcare is going to hit you at some point or the other. I always try to look at the fact that the United States covers more people than any country in the world with health care, and I think a lot of people are satisfied with their coverage. We do want to prevent people from not having coverage. We don't like to see people go bankrupt because they can't get coverage. And most countries do have what they call extra benefits that they allow patients to be seen in different tiers, but there is that basic foundation or underlying relief that you know that the it will be covered. You may have to wait a while. In the United States, you hear the word rationing of health care. It's pretty much a political non-starter. So when they talk about other plans such as Medicare for all, we have to understand that that system already is running in a deficit. So I think when you listen to the politicians talk, and we don't know yet what these plans might look like. Uh, we've seen incremental plans. Maybe we'll start with Medicare down to the age of 55. Normally it starts at 65 or 50, whatever. I think it's important to see what the plans are and what the budget would be and how the details evolve. Yes, it seems to always fall back to physicians' goodwill to take care of patients. And strong lobbies are out there. Physicians tend to just want to practice medicine and all caregivers really have interest to the patient. It's frustrating for the population who don't have coverage, can't afford coverage. It's such a complex issue. It's never simple. And so it's going to be interesting to see what's worked out. I think my personal belief is, along with Mark's, is that we'll see a two-tiered system. If you're absolutely on Social Security or you have no means, uh, there should be coverage. And then if people are frustrated about getting in line because we're the United States and people have means, want to move up, they want to buy the more expensive car, they can. They want to buy the more expensive health care, they can. And I think we'll evolve to a two-tiered system. Your thoughts? Well, I think it, in many ways it boils down to money and how much we want to spend. If you want to have Cadillac health care for everybody, then it's going to cost a lot of money. And in the end, if you want to run that through the federal government and we decide that we're not going to ration care, in one form or another, and that everybody's going to have this access to the same stuff, then we've got to be prepared to pay a lot more than 20% of GDP for healthcare. 
that's that's a fact. There is no such thing as a free lunch, and it's true in healthcare. Um, so I do think that we're probably going to end up with a two-tiered system the way things are working. It's it seems somewhat inevitable. Maybe somebody will come up with another solution across the board. I don't necessarily want to say that it's the necessarily the best solution. Um, but the other thing I think, and, and Dr. Frankel mentioned, we don't have the political will to deal with rationing. And the, that, to me, is one of the things that, as a, as a society or as a whole in this country, we need to come to grips with the fact that we are unwilling to pay for all things, for all people in all events. And if we can come together with some political will to address what is important and those things that should be covered and really deal with those issues, we now have the ability to actually distribute the healthcare dollars much more intelligently than we are right now. You know, we keep saying we're spending 70% of the healthcare dollar on the last year of life. What, why, you know, the question is, why are we continuing to do that? Are there different ways to approach those things? And, you know, we've seen more people going and choosing, you know, hospice and some of those things instead of the high-end cancer drugs that sometimes work and sometimes don't. We still need research. We still need all those things to come into play to really solve this thing for everybody in the long term. I don't think we'll get there without rationing and really dealing with that. We can at least start a discussion so that people have some idea what people's wishes and wills are. Dr. Frankel, your thoughts? Some excellent points have been made. Some of the basic things that affects physicians, for instance, are malpractice. And there's some simple changes to the malpractice rules that would make us potentially not do tests that we really don't feel are necessary, but do increase costs of health care. We have a pretty diverse society. When you look at other countries that may have 30 million people, 20 million people, they don't really have some of the issues we have with 340 million people. And people feel emboldened to ask for things and get them right away. We need some relief on the regulatory side before we can even move to things that seem so logical and basic. Our system is designed in certain ways, and the, and the lawyers do come after us if we don't provide certain tests in rare situations. That can result in CAT scans and medications given to patients when the odds are they may not need it. So we need some regulatory relief before we can change a lot of the system. Uh, obviously, we all care. It's, as I said earlier, a very complex issue. It'll be interesting to see where this next election takes us. So I think we need to wrap up given time. Any last comments? I, I would guess I would say in all of this, we need to understand that the way the market is set up now pits kind of all the members of the healthcare arena somewhat against one another. You know, the insurance company versus the physician, the hospital versus the physician, the patient versus the hospital, the physician, and the insurance company. And it's difficult to get over that when we need to really get past some of those issues. And, you know, and we need to because it is a... You know, again, going back, it is kind of a global pot of money that we're willing to spend on healthcare. We need to figure out how to spread it and deal with it differently. So, taking a good look at healthcare and the policies that are out there and some of the long term stuff, and it is a very complex issue, is important. And it's hard not to get lost in one thing over another, you know, one particular drug or one particular procedure or group of people. It's a it's a melting pot across the board and it's it's a it's one heck of an issue stirred up, but it needs to be addressed and it needs to be discussed openly. 
to get anywhere. I think that when you listen to news channels, it really seems to boil down to economics and insurance companies, very little focus on the patients themselves, the physicians, the nurses, the actual providers of the health care. We're kind of almost becoming pawns in a bigger system. And I really think it needs to be a little more self-directed. I think patients need to be involved in their health care. We can save money with preventative measures such as a childhood obesity, smoking cessation, things that patients can do for themselves. And I think that should be incorporated into some health care plans. Basically, Basically, it's become such a high-level shuffling game of fiscal notes between insurance companies, government plans. It's very difficult for our country to settle this issue because it's become such a political hot potato. And it is a big part of the budget that's frozen. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. I think I know the providers are very interested in looking out for the patients and their global good. Well, I think that sums everything up. I truly appreciate your time and thank you. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance, Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org or visit your physician or care provider.